Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. But you know, we're going to do things a little differently for the next couple weeks. But before I get into that, I want to share with you all what's happening over here at Off Camera. A little bit of an update, so to speak. I received news a few weeks back that our television home, Audience Network, which has aired the show since the beginning, is ceasing production of original programming and will subsequently not be airing original episodes of Off Camera. So for right now, we don't have a television partner for the show, and we're actively looking for a new home so that we can continue the show. Our hope is that we can find a partner that wants to make new original episodes of Off Camera so we can keep this thing going. And you know, having this downtime while we figure out our next steps has really given me a chance to reflect on the history of this show, and I wanted to share some of my thoughts about that. And especially for the podcast audience, give you all some history about the way Off Camera started. First off, I want to say that if you told me in 2013 that this little homemade TV show, podcast, magazine thing would still be going 220 episodes and six years later, I wouldn't have believed you. Off Camera literally started as an experiment in the lobby of my old studio. We put up a few cardboard backdrops, used the bathroom wall as a stage, and shot our first conversation on Canon still photography cameras. We didn't have soundproofing, and we were right under a skylight. So in those early episodes, you can hear delivery trucks in the background and see noticeable shifts in lighting when the sun went behind the clouds. I remember asking Robert Downey to hold that thought while a FedEx truck backed down the alley. We put the episodes up on our website and we released the podcast independently. And we hoped people would stumble upon our little site. And I kept asking favors and hounding people to come in and talk to me for an hour about their careers, their hopes, their aspirations, their fears, their doubts. And for some reason, they did which I'm still amazed at to this day. I owe a debt of gratitude to everyone who came in and shared their stories with me when we didn't have an audience or any distribution. People like John Krasinski, Robert Downey, Laura Dern, Judd Apatow, Will Forte, Dave Grohl, Amy Mann, Sarah Silverman, and Tony Hawk all believed in me long before there was a reason to, and I'm forever thankful for that. And then sometime around the beginning of 2014, I received a call from Bart Peters, an executive producer at Audience Network, who wanted to meet with us. My friend Mark Strand was editing a show for them at the time, and I guess he sang our praises to the folks over there, and they got interested. So our producer Crawford and I went to the DirecTV offices and met with Bart and Chris Long, who was running Audience at the time. And they asked about the vision for the show and wanted some assurance that I would keep getting high-profile talent to come on, to which I immediately said yes, Although, to be honest, at that time, I felt like I had already exhausted all my favors. And unbelievably, they offered us a deal. They wanted to air the 11 shows we had already made and order 22 more. Furthermore, they were on board with the black and white idea, which, now that I think about it, it's still probably the only black and white reoccurring talk show since television started broadcasting in color. And they completely supported the idea of me having whomever I wanted on the show with no input from them. Basically, they licensed the show from us and asked for no creative control. They let us keep making a podcast, and they let us air the show on our own website. Looking back now, I realize how rare it is to have executives in a network who believe in and support a project to that extent. So we went into production. There were some growing pains for sure. We had to figure out how to book talent outside of my Rolodex, and we had to have a studio that didn't have sound and lighting issues. We needed better cameras, and we needed more staff. It was around then that off-camera stopped being an experiment and started being a business. We invested in building out a studio in Santa Monica, and within a few months, we were shooting episodes in the new space. I'll never forget the first episode we filmed in the new building. 
The power went out four different times during taping, sending the studio into total darkness and shutting down the cameras. Matt Damon was the guest, and I'm sure he was thinking, what the hell is this show I've agreed to be on? Funny enough, he was originally scheduled to do the show in the old space before we had a TV deal, because he's a super generous guy, but he had a big mountain bike accident the day before we were supposed to shoot, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because it rained so hard the next day we never could have filmed in the old space anyway. The rain sounded like bullets on the skylight. So, Matt became our de facto first guest in the new space. He suffered through the power issues, and we were off to the races. Bard and Chris over at DirecTV were so supportive of the show. After the first year, they let us throw a party and celebrate. I think there were 33 episodes at that point. The next year, they re-upped for 22 more episodes, and I realized this could become my full-time gig. Every year around November, Crawford and I would wonder if they would pick us up again, and the nervousness would set in. But the third year, they increased their order to 36 episodes, and in the fourth year, they asked for 45 episodes a year. That's basically one a week with a little time off at Christmas and summer. That's when the show got really real, because we seriously didn't know if we could fill the chair each week with someone that I found interesting and who actually wanted to drive to Santa Monica and sit and talk to me for an hour. I have to single out Crawford here for the fact that we pulled this off. He fostered relationships with all the publicists and became, in addition to all his other duties, a full-time booker. The show went from us asking favors to us fielding offers, and I don't know how we would have done it without Crawford's ability to definitely manage expectations and not ruffle feathers, all the while booking artists that I really wanted to talk to. We were really in the swing of things when the news dropped that AT&T had bought DirecTV and that Chris and Bart were moving on to other projects. We certainly wondered if the new folks would be as supportive of the show or if they would take things in another direction entirely. That November in year five was certainly a nervous time because we had no idea we would get a new contract. Between the Justice Department getting involved in the merger of AT&T and Time Warner, an audience not hiring a replacement to run the network, we wondered about our future. But once again, we were assured that off-camera was a big priority and we were re-up for another season. Then halfway through last year, we reached another milestone, filming our 200th episode and having Robert Downey back to commemorate the occasion. I decided to sit in the chair for episode 201, and Jason Sudeikis took over the question asking. And then it was back to business as usual. At the end of this year, things were strangely silent around Audience Network, and our re-update passed. The executives assured us that as long as there was an Audience Network, off-camera was coming back. That didn't sound that good, but we waited, we took our Christmas holidays, and then a few weeks ago, I got the call that no one ever wants to get. Off-camera was not being picked up because Audience Network was being dismantled and turned into a preview channel for HBO Max, effective sometime this year. No new shows of any kind were being ordered. So that's where we are. And again, to get to do over 200 shows with a network that literally never even stepped foot inside our studio and let us do exactly what we wanted to do is unprecedented. And I have nothing but love for everyone at Audience Network that supported us and gave us this opportunity. That includes Shane Elrod, Heather Davis, Dan York, Kelly Beck, Karen Rosentis, Rick Corcoran, Timothy Sean, Mark Parsons, and of course, Bart Peters and Chris Long, who believed in us originally. So now we find ourselves with a show, but without a network. Luckily, we own our show, and we very much want to find a new home and keep going. So we're digging into that process and looking for a broadcast partner as I tell you this news. And in the meanwhile, I want to use this space to bring you some of my favorite shows over the years while we work behind the scenes to figure out our next steps. If you're wondering what you can do to help, well, if you own a streaming television network, definitely give us a call, but mostly just keep tuning into the podcast, 
Go online to offcamera.com and watch shows from our archives, talk about us on social media, and stay patient while we figure things out. For the coming weeks, we will air my favorite episodes from our archives that you may have missed. And now here's one of my early favorites with Ethan Hawke. Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, poet, and documentarian Ethan Hawke. Success came to Ethan Hawke when he was young. He landed The Explorers, a major motion picture, at age 13, off his first audition, no less. His second film, at 18, under Robin Williams' tutelage on and off screen, was the now-classic Dead Poet Society. He's been an established star ever since. At age 24, in the midst of his early film successes, he published The Hottest State. Hawk admits that adding novelist to his resume made him an easy target for ridicule. The word pretentious has been thrown at him countless times, often by foes, a few times by friends, and even by himself. His response? It beats not trying. He did keep trying, and with his true renaissance man's every career milestone over 20-plus years, the naysaying is drowned out by the praise. His roles in Reality Bites, Training Day, the Before Sunrise trilogy, and most recently, Boyhood, have entrenched him in the top tier of the film industry with four Oscar nominations. He has the faith of stage producers and directors as well. He's done Shakespeare, Chekhov, and three plays with Tom Stoppard. His second novel, Ash Wednesday, was a bestseller and inspired the New York Times to write, he displays a novelist's innate gifts. He has a sharp eye, a fluid storytelling voice, and the imagination to create complicated individuals. A funny thing happened as Hawk ripened into maturity. He morphed from embodying the essence of perpetually promising youth to a personification of the wisdom that comes with the passage of time. In the Sunrise Trilogy, 18 years in the making, and Boyhood, 12 years in the making, we watched Hawk get older, less idealistic, and more attuned to life's up and downs. On screen, he's let himself wise up, screw up, and then get up and move on, older and smarter. In his real life, he takes these lessons to heart. Now, in his latest film, he moves behind the camera to show the world someone who's played the game of life even more skillfully than he. An 87-year-old piano player named Seymour Bernstein, who embodies an ethos that Hawk has embraced. In the grand scheme, it's not about growing up. It's not about growing old. It's simply about growing. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hey, Ethan. Hello. How you doing? Good, man. Thanks for coming and doing this. Um, I'm a really big fan of your work, and uh, and I, I feel like just because of our relative ages and the music that I know you like, that that we have a lot of cross-cultural reference points in common. So it's, it's really nice to have you here. And I wanted to open with um, a quote from The Hottest State. Okay. Because when I heard it, it sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I, and I, I sort of just selfishly want to know the impetus of, of this quote and how you came up with it and how it relates to you. But it's... Um, the quote is, when you were young, everyone tells you to follow your dreams. And when you get older, people get offended if you even try. Yeah. And that just blew me away. And, and, you know, as a father now, thinking about that, there's so much truth in that quote. And, and I wondered where that came from. I was just starting to write. 
and I was thinking about publishing this book. I'd had this amazing experience with Richard Linklater making Before Sunrise. And I, I kind of had this novel that I've been working on, but I was a little embarrassed about it. You know, just because I was getting a name for myself as an actor, and it's, it's a weird thing to say to somebody, like, oh, I'm working on a novel. You, you immediately sound like a pretentious asshole, you know. And so, um, but Rick was really interested. And Rick was the first guy I'd ever met who didn't, you know, so much of our culture and everybody meets is so knee-jerk judgmental all the time. Don't do that. Oh, you won't be cool. I mean, yeah. For my brother, like, what kind of underwear? You can't wear those, dude. That's not cool. You know, not, you know, the older brother thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my older brother had a code. You know, those pants are against the code, dude. Those uh, shoes are too new, dude. You know what I mean? It's like everything's... And it creates this whole thing of, like, trying to be cool all the time. And I, I've been working on this book, and, and after... On Before Sunrise, Rick was really encouraging me to write, you know, to help with this movie. He really wanted the movie to be personal to Julia Delpy and myself. And, and, and he wanted us to write scenes in the movie. Well, you write that, man, he'd say. I said, wouldn't it be great if this happened that? Yeah, that would be great. You write it. And I'd be like, all right. And I wrote it, and he put it in the movie. He's like, that's great. And it was the first time where somebody was really taking, some, I respected him a lot. And he was taking me really seriously as a writer. And um, I went to a publishing house with my novel after the movie was done to try to see if somebody would be interested. And because of Reality Bites and a little bit of celebrity that was following me around at the time, somebody leaked it to People Magazine and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it was out that Ethan Hawke is, thinks he's the world's greatest novelist. Do you, right. you know? And I remember the Village Voice ran a little thing. Ethan Hawke sucks his own dick. You know? and, <laughs> and I was a little astounded by the negativity. Like... It just, it was, it felt a lot akin to getting punched in the nose. It was like, oh, wow. I was an only, you know, I, I was, I had a stepbrother, that's what I was talking about, but I was an only child between my mother and my father, and, and I guess maybe my mother had been kind of indulgent of me or whatever, and I just thought everything I did was the cat's pajamas, you know, and so uh, it was a wake-up call that the world is not rooting for you, you know? Everybody doesn't want you to be Hemingway, right? They actually want to mock you. Like that's yeah. what, what, that's what they want to do is mock you. And I was shocked by it. And it was a great thing. I mean, it may sound like I'm complaining. I'm not. It was because what it is, is it's kind of like a, for lack of a better expression, it's like a hymen of sorts. It's a block. It's a thing that if you don't have the guts to break through, then you don't belong there. Right. You, you know, you got to be willing to be made fun of. It's not up to you to decide whether your work is good or bad. If you think making a documentary is valuable, if you think writing a book is valuable, if you think making a movie is valuable, if you think somebody telling the truth as they know it is valuable, well, then it's valuable for you. Now, it may not be good, but that's not up to you. You know, the attempt is all, really, right? Like, and I got I got kind of into it, it was in, as I, re, I did a revision of the book, and this line kind of came to me about, well, God, it's this weird lie we tell kids to just follow your dreams. People don't want you to follow your dreams. Yeah. They don't want it. Some musician, I won't remember who it is, but, but some rocker said, the thing that we love to see about a guy doing a jamming guitar solo in center stage of Madison Square Garden, letting it rip and just, you know, smashing the guitar, whatever it is, is like, is somebody who's just going, I'm not scared. Right, 
Right. Know? It's somebody that validates and, and, that, and we, that idea that we can be more. That's why I think I connect to music so much. Is yeah. Because in real life, you don't feel that way, right? You don't feel like anyone around you supports. Most of the time, you don't feel that way. There's so much fear. There's so much trepidation inside yourself and inside others, inside your parents. Oh, you, you're going to do that? You sure you want to do that? You know, to, to do anything in the arts, you just have to be willing to make an ass of yourself. And that's when I realized when I would be mocked about writing The Hottest State or whatever, I realized, oh, this is the point. I have to be willing to be mocked. And I have to walk through this fire. Because if I'm doing it for people to think I'm a big shot or think I'm neat, well, then I am not real anyway. You, you know? Well, it brings up a question for me about, you know, your personal experience as a kid. You came into acting pretty young and had success pretty young. But I wonder if you had a, an idea that your big dreams would work out. I mean, were you the kind of guy that was dreaming big and that it worked out? There was a part of me that dreamt big and believed that they were all going to come true. And then there was another part of me that was certain I'd fall flat on my ass. You know, I, it, Both are true. It's not like I didn't ever have big dreams. Some days... I remember my mom from my 16th birthday gave me Laurence Olivier's biography on acting, you know? And I remember, this is the hubris of youth, right? I was 16 years old. I read it all that night. And, and he, at the end, toward the end, he talks about playing Lear and how he does great, and the, the crown went on his head. And he said this dare to the youth of the world to come and take it. I dare. And I remember thinking, all right, Larry, I'll take it, you <laughs> bastard. You know what I remember thinking? I'll play Lear. I'll be, and I, I had these fantasies about being the first American ever knighted. You know, I thought, <laughs> like, in a year of these dreams. And then, but no, three hours later, I would be certain that I would spend my life licking my wounds for never having, right. you know, for failing to get the part of Horatio at the Cleveland Rep, you know? I mean, I... I knew that I wanted to be involved in the arts, and it didn't feel far-fetched to me. I meet some young people, and it just feels so far-fetched to them, and I, I sometimes wish I could just give them the, the DNA, the gene that says, nobody else knows what they're doing either. Don't worry. Did you know that early? I think so. Yeah. I had a, well, I had a really great thing happen, which was um, I got... Through a fluke, through a total lark, I got cast in this major Hollywood movie, The Explorers, when I was 13 years right, old. Right. Right? I'd done a local play. I'd met this young man who was my friend. He went into audition in New York. I followed him. I got the part. And it, through many auditions. And, and I met River Phoenix. And I, I stopped child acting after. The movie was a failure. And, and that was a great lesson for me. You know, just, just to have failure right off the bat and to see that everything's not going to get handed to you, you know. Um, that was really good. But I got, River kept acting, and I watched him, and I watched Stand By Me come out, and right. I saw how good he was in Stand By Me. I mean, it's a funny thing to talk about now, but I showed Stand By Me to my kids the other day, and that movie holds up. I mean, that, that River's a 15-year-old James Dean in that movie. I mean, he is incredible in that movie. And, but I watched that, and I knew how good he was. And it made it seem doable to me because he was my friend. Oh, right, right. And it made it seem not impossible. Well, if he could be that good, you know, there's a little part of you. I was just a natural competitive kid. I was like, I'm cooler than him. I mean, I wasn't, let me be clear. But, but you know, there's that part of you that goes, I could do that. 
Right, you you had him brought did. home, like yeah. Like it wasn't you guys like, were in that movie together. Yeah, and, he wasn't like Clark Gable or something. It was this River. I slept over his house. I knew right. his brother. I, knew, I mean, come on, I can do that. You know, you, you know, and I couldn't do it yet. River was ahead of me. Um, you know, River was ahead of our whole generation. I, I think River made it seem like it was not a far fetched dream. Do, you, yeah, because I, th- I meet a lot of young people who feel like, oh, you know, they think you if you're in a movie star, you must have been born on the planet Pluto or something. You, you know, or you, your dad must have been the head of Warner Brothers. Right, you right. Know? When you come back into acting, you, you get dead poets. Yeah. I, I read a quote where you said something like, the first experience you have can really kind of set the tone for your career. And as a kid, you had had this sort of not great experience, but then you're on this set and... You said at the time you didn't even realize how good you had it, but that, but that, that first experience. I mean, did that set the bar for you as as to oh, how God, a yes. film should be made and how the relationships go between the actors and the director and everything? There was an attention to detail, and more importantly, a respect for what was possible. You know, there's a there's a, a thing that Peter Weir would say that. The difference between good and great is like one twist of the screw, but it's the hardest one to do. It's it's so, so much rehearsal, so much thought needs to go into the, the tiniest gesture that ultimately needs to be spontaneous and can't even be planned out. You know, and this was a time period in a culture when even studios valued this. We had three weeks. They, they booked a hotel room for the seven of us as poets and Robin and stuff. We sat in the conference room of the Radisson Hotel, working on our characters, writing our character biographies, doing controlled improvisations, figuring out backstory, each charged with writing other scenes. Kind of stuff I've never done in another movie. Wow. And But Peter, but this was my first, and so... Peter was showing us attention to detail. Now, this is something later when I met Richard Linklater. I was like, you know, or when I got to work with Denzel, you know, you, you see somebody who cares about that. Right, right. Um, who's, who's setting an extremely high bar and who really thinks it matters a lot, you know, whether or not the cup goes like that or like that. Because it's an accumulation. Peter used to say this thing about it's like a sailboat. Performance, music, any kind of art, it's if, it, if the sheet catches wind, every true moment, every beautiful thing, every honest thought puts um, wind in the sail. And every fake moment and every cheat and every lie is a little tear, right? And you can sustain some of them. A few tears, you can st- the, the ship will still move. But to make the Godfather, you know, to make a series, to write To Kill a Mockingbird, to do something amazing, it's, it's got to be no tears. And how many can we get rid of? And how much truth, you know, beauty is defined as truth, right? How much can we put that in the sail? And if we can do that, we can make something really beautiful. Now, I'm 18, so I think this is normal for a director to talk this way. Right. You know? And it was, it was years before anybody talked to me like that again. And particularly, there's a great scene in the movie, one of my favorite scenes I've ever been involved in is where Robin makes me recite a poem, uh, make up a poem. Yep. And it's basically him teaching me the creative act, which is what the scene is about, and he's also teaching me how to act. 
well, it happens, you, you know. And did I mean, you feel that at yeah, the time? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he was, the thing that was amazing about Robin is his ability to incorporate any reality, you know. Most, some actors you work with, and they, they have this plan. Right. This is what I want to achieve with this scene, you know. And you can usually smell it, which means you're not watching creativity, you're watching some kind of recreativity. Right, right. Watch, they're, they're, I've done this before. I'm going to use a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I cry on this line, and it's, sometimes it's quite good. But with Robin, Robin had no idea what was going to happen. No idea. Yeah, and, and so walking on stage with Robin or walking from the camera, well, you had no idea. And, you know, all the best performers I've ever worked with create that in their own way, this kind of vibration of spontaneity. This, and you know, a great painting has the same thing, right? It's got this weird vibration of like, right. they didn't, did they really plan to do that? Like, even I remember doing this play with Tom Stoppard once and him saying, when, it's a great thing, he said, when you're, when you're writing really well, these things happen where you just kind of talk about how the character walked in with a red shoe and then at the end of the play, this other thing happens and it's the two kids come in with red shoes and you realize the metaphors match and it seems like you set it up but you didn't, it was all by accident. And when you're writing poorly is when you're thinking, oh, I've got an idea, won't the red shoes be great? It's like, when it happens by accident, you know, because your heart and your spirit are all in line, it's beautiful. And when it happens up here, you know, you smell it. Yeah. yeah, Robin, yeah. Robin at all was just, I mean, that's why his fault as an actor, you know, when people were critical of him, it would always be over sentimentality. Guy had a heart for days. Sure. What a way to start. And, and, uh, and I'm sure in some ways, you know, you would walk on future sets and be able to sort of go, oh, I can rate this set in relation to that experience, right? Mm-hmm. Because... And I, you know, and and I read an interesting thing too. That apparently you tried to go to NYU and and twice and sort of finish an English major and got roles and had to move on and 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 weren't able to stay in school. And I got to thinking about that. And uh, and you know, success is a funny thing because when you get it in any area, you realize how limiting the other areas of your life become. Right, and I and I feel like you probably dealt with that pretty early, mm-hmm. right? I mean, was there was there a time when you were like, God, I, the opportunities are too good to turn down, but, but you know, there's this other thing I really want to do, and I, have you struggled yeah. with that a lot? Absolutely. I mean, especially when I was younger, when I used to think that you had to make a decision, you know, about. I, I've changed my attitude about. Y- so much of life is a reaction. And when you're young, you think you have to assert yourself all the time. Right. And, and, and there's a time for asserting yourself. But often life is made up about how you react to the given facts of your life. And I really wanted to be a writer. I, when I was young, I wanted to be Jack London. I thought when I auditioned for Dead Poets Society that I was using it as a means to an end. Meaning, I thought it was going to be exactly like The Explorers. Yeah, these people think this movie's a big deal, but it's going to be a giant flop and nobody's going to know. And, and, and what it'll do is it'll get me out of college and it will get me... I had these fantasies of being a merchant marine. I had these fantasies of going to be a writing major, but I didn't have any... 
my writing wasn't good enough. But for some reason, doors kept opening up at acting. Like, for example, to get a scholarship to school, I, I couldn't do it on my writing. But I could do it on my acting. Okay. You, you, you know? But I hated it at theater school. You know, I just thought, oh, I'm not cut out for this. But then Dead Poets Society happened and doors started opening. And I was extremely um, worried that I would be, you know, some teen um, casualty. Right. That was my big fear that, you know, I mean, most kids who start acting when they're 18 are, they're not 44 getting to be interviewed by you and do this whole thing. A lot of them, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of traps along the way, you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, to have success that young, I mean, you even said, I think, at one time that success at that young, it screws you up. Oh, it, it's, it's, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, it, but what I didn't realize is that I could still, I didn't have to say goodbye to all these other things that I loved. You know, I loved writing, and like we talked about with The Hottest State Up, it hung around in there. And then uh, some of the best times of my life now have been writing before sunset and before midnight with Rick and Julie. Uh, and I couldn't have done that if I hadn't had the kind of background in writing that I had. I, I, I knew a little bit about it, and I was ready for that experience. And... I've been, you know, I've directed a lot of plays and started a theater company. Yeah. And because I wasn't too in love with acting, I think I didn't kind of strangle my own talent or something. Right. I really enjoyed doing different things, which at that moment meaning like, oh, I'll do a really cool um, genre movie if I like it, you know, if I think it's interesting. And I like to do art house movies and I like to do, you know, I'll do a cop picture and I like to do Tennessee Williams and Shakespeare. And I like to write. And, you know, or I've found that curios- keeping curiosity alive keeps me alive. Yeah, you know? yeah. Part of, I think, what, what makes young people so attractive and what makes us long for that period of our life is when our brain was so curious. You know? And it's, if we really think one lifetime is enough to lose our curiosity about this world then we've really lost perspective, you know? We have no idea about anything. There's so much to be curious about. And, and you know this too. Having kids myself now, I, I kind of can see the world through their eyes. And It's so fun to have a 16-year-old and watch her fall in love with pop music and watch her fall in love with pop culture and seeing what movies last. You know, seeing her friends all get together and watch some weird old Woody Allen movie and love it. And at the same time, trying to show her something else and have her... Nah, that didn't, it's fascinating to me and watching them fall in love with falling in love. It's, it's almost like having a puppy that turns into a human being right before your eyes. They get so complicated because you love them and they're neat and they're interesting. And then there's this consciousness that unfolds. And, and I, I love being near it. I love being near that kind of curiosity. And the fun thing about putting yourself in a situation where you may fall on your ass, whether it's, you know, putting yourself outside your comfort zone in any way at all, is it makes you feel like a kid. Yes, I totally agree. When I haven't done a play in four years and I go do a play, I feel like I'm in high school. I'm petrified, you know, and it's a kind of thrill because you get in that mindset of a student where you want to study Shakespeare all night. And I wouldn't, want to study Shakespeare on that if I didn't have to recite it in front of 2,000 people the next day. I mean, that'll, that energy is what 
you right, know, you, pushes need, you. you need something, some sort of stakes. Exactly. It's the same. I remember people uh, saying when the hottest state came out, for example, or Ash Wednesday, for that matter, saying, you know, it's fine if he wants to write, but uh, why does he have to publish? And I'm thinking, well, if you don't publish, you don't really have the experience of writing. That's right. You, you know, because it's, it's giving it away to other people and passing through that gauntlet. That's, that's the thing that's so hard. That's, I mean, it's fun to write in your journal, and that is writing, and it's neat, but publishing makes you a writer. And it's scary. And working an editor and crafting a sentence and obsessing over a paragraph and working on chapters and doing all this stuff. I'm so, I'm so grateful I had that experience. Who gives a shit if the thing's any good or not? It was so fun to do. It's funny. I, I, I was just thinking the other day, I was doing a, a different interview. And somebody said to me, what's your career highlight, they asked me. I remember thinking, God, nobody's ever asked me that. It seems such an obvious question. Because, you know, I don't know if you think, Really thinking highlights and lowlights, yeah. and it's like it's all the same thing. But I wanted to say, and I did say that it was probably doing Shakespeare's Macbeth at Lincoln Center. And it's weird. I finished that just over a year ago. That was one of the hardest things I ever did. I can't believe it came out of my mouth that it was my favorite. Do you, you know, really, because it was so damn hard. And and but you know, I didn't go to the RSC, you know, I've done three Shakespeare plays, I just love it, you know, and the, the kind of, we live in a culture of such Anglophiles, you, you know, especially about acting, sure. you know, like if you're not Laurence Olivier or Mark Rylance or this fabulous Sir Ian McKellen or Judy Dench or Vanessa Redgrave, you don't deserve, you don't to have do the right to do it. Right. Well, I thought, you know, the, my inner self says, oh, to hell with that, I'll do it, I love that play, I can do that. You know, well, then you get out there and do it, and then the fear comes in. And, and it was so painful to try to embody that character the way that I want to and to try to make it work. And, and I, I was involved with a group of people that were really serious artists, a lot of whom knew a lot more about Shakespeare than I did. And I was the lead guy. You How know? does that feel? Because Tough, it, it, you know? it brings self-doubt into it, right? Uh, yeah, it opens the door completely. And, you know... Here it is a year later, and all I remember is the joy of doing it, the high, you know, no, doing the, the scene when the ghosts appear, and, you know, Lady Macbeth is trying to keep everybody entertained while I'm having a nervous breakdown, and, you know, or, or the sword fight, or this, you know, getting to do uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. I mean, wow, in front of us, I ain't shit, it was just heaven. Because on the nights that it really worked, and, um, my point being is that people think the high point is going to be, oh, going to the Oscars or something. You know, all that stuff fades away, you know. But doing something hard, you know, and, and surviving, that is the high. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, Sunbasket. You know, something we all do three to 17 times a day is eat. And for me, I'm busy, I have a family, I like to cook. Sometimes meal prep can be overwhelming. And you always want to make something where you feel good about eating it, it's healthy, and it tastes good. But you know the work it takes. With Sunbasket, you can put that all on autopilot. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy, 
with delicious recipes for all kinds of dietary preferences, including paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, vegetarian, pescatarian, or my favorite, porcatarian, and more. They make it easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook. You can feel like you have your own sous chef with Sunbasket, and you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Each week, Sunbasket offers at least 14 recipes to choose from, so you can try mouth-watering dishes such as salmon burgers with lemon dill mayo, gingered steak stir-fry with broccoli, and Mediterranean garlic shrimp with Spanish rice. Plus, Sunbasket has delicious options for an on-the-go breakfast, lunch, snacks, and more, so you can make sure your busy schedule doesn't get in the way of eating well. And Sunbasket delivers straight to your door. You can order from any recipes across their menu, skip a week whenever you need to, or double up on recipes for company. It's simple and easy with no gotchas. Basically, they've taken this model, figured out what worked and didn't work, made it super high quality, and the result is a pretty much perfect system for meal prep and eating healthy. And right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash offcamera and you enter the promo code offcamera at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash offcamera and enter the promo code offcamera at checkout for $35 off your order. One more time, that's sunbasket.com slash offcamera and enter the promo code offcamera. Now let's get back to offcamera. You speak of career highs, and, and uh, I, I love the Before Sunrise trilogy. And, and um, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you, you reprise this role, you've reprised it three times mm-hmm. so far, about every nine years. Mm-hmm. And it's yourself and Julie Delpy, mm-hmm. directed by Rick Linklater. And you said once that, that writing Before Sunset and having that experience was it exceeded all expectations of what being involved in the world of film could be for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you described it as you could just die. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, if, you know, I mean, I have a lot of questions about that, those films, but, but right off the bat, did you feel like when you sort of hit your stride with that and started writing that it was a different experience than you ever had before in, in yeah. the world of filmmaking? I felt like an adult. You felt like an adult. Mm-hmm. I've been a child actor, and even, you know, it started on training day, and things like that. I started growing up. But before Sunset, what was so special about that for me was that there's something experimental in the tone of it. You know, this movie took place in real time. It's just two people talking, we're walking around. It was, the target felt very, very small. It was going to be very difficult to make that movie and not have it be a piece of pretentious dreck, you know? And, and we knew it. And I really love working with my contemporaries. Like, I really love Rick and Julie. They're really smart, and, and they're very wise about cinema. And the three of us are a good band, and it felt good to believe in ourselves. I remember, because like, there was a... At, at the time, I don't believe that it was the lowest grossing movie to ever spawn a sequel was Before Sunrise. I, I remember a friend of mine saw the ad for you. You guys made a sequel to Before Sunrise? I'm like, yeah. He goes, he said, wasn't that movie a flop? I'm like, yeah, I guess. And, and he said, wow, you guys must really believe in yourselves. And I thought, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you know, what's so wrong with that? You know, 
Um, and the movie, it worked. And it was about um, things that were personal and real to me. And I got to put them in the service of something that wasn't navel-gazing or some bullshit like that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I took away from it that, you know, there's this blurred line between fiction and reality. And, and it's probably a disservice to say that it looks like it looks like it was really easy to make, which is probably both a compliment and but a that's disservice. that's the goal. You right? Know? But I would assume that's your most naturalistic acting. I mean, I assume that's the most of you in there. And right. And so, which then the... There are some people that might say that that somehow makes it easy. What I find is really hard, and it's the goal of my working life, is to put you on film. You know, not you like some kind of, uh, like me, Ethan, and like the individuality of my personality is relevant or significant or important. It's not. But putting something true to myself in the service of a larger entity uh, on celluloid. You know, you and I enjoy talking about rock and roll, but you can tell when a song means something to somebody. Absolutely. You can tell. Absolutely. And you listen to it over and over again because there's a little piece of them in there. That they, it's, like, it's like a it's a skin that somebody shed. And they're not trying to sell you anything, and they're not trying to make a buck. They're trying to communicate. Is that and how you feel about that? That's how I feel trilogy. about those movies. And people think that, that's not me. You know, I, I'm very clear. That's, that's a, that character is a character we've been working on, all of us. And, but the fact that it, it's very difficult to make something seem that easy, you, you know? It, it is. And um, I, I'm not breaking my arm to pat myself on the back, but what I mean is I love that kind of acting. That's what Chekhov was going after. Could you really just be on stage? Right, What would, what right. would happen? What would happen if, if people could really actually see how boring, funny, sublime, romantic, elegiac, and stupid their lives are, you know, if you could really do that, as opposed to trying to sell some plot or some glamour puss. Uh, and Rick was giving me a chance to do what I always most wanted to do. You know, I, I saw them as they came out, and so I rewatched them again for this interview, all three of them. And at the time, I, at the time of the first two, at least, they seemed very realistic to me. And now I watch them, they seem idealized a bit like and, and I wonder if you feel like the stories are realistic or more of an idealized version of love a I think bit. that represents the age you're at when you're watching them maybe so because did you you know it, or or not I, we felt with the third one that the first two are idealized yes and that yes and that if we were going to make a third one the first two are all about expectation hope romantic projection you know, and they're idealized, but I don't think dishonestly so. They're the idealized the way young people try to idealize their life. They're always, you know, we're all trying to write a narrative of our life that we like, where we like ourselves, where we're the good guy, right? And, and we'll do that with our lovers. She's amazing. She's so mysterious. She's so, oh, so profound. And she is, of course. But then comes this thing of when you get what you want and the mystery fades away, this romantic, and we knew that the third movie had to be about that, and that was the goal of the third film, which I loved, which our mission statement basically to ourselves is, can you make a movie 
about two people who have been together 10 years, who have children together, um, and have it be romantic without one lie. Well, you, you the know, fight was so real. Anyone who's been married has had those fights <laughs> and have them, you know, go into every direction except for the direction that would solve the conflict. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I felt like it ended on an idealized note. And mm-hmm. maybe that was, I mean, it brings the question, do you guys plan to do another one? Because it feels like it ended on the two of them getting back to who they well, were. You know, well, core. you know, as somebody who talks to people who see those movies more often than you do, sure. right, right? What that says to me is that you like the relationship that you're in, you know? In that, People who don't like the relationship they're in feel the end of the movie, they're never going to be together. That's funny. They're, they're never, you know, if you're, because some people see the fight the way that we all kind of intended it, which is that if you're fighting at all like that, there's a desire for connection. Yes. And there's a desire for healing and forgiveness. They're reaching out to each other. They're just missing. But it, the fact that they're reaching is a great sign. And there are other people that see the whole thing as lost, you know? Right. And that usually speaks more to how you're looking at the universe. Well, you know, I read Anna Karenina when I was younger and I read it when I was older. Wow, it's a different book. You know, I mean, I thought Anna and Vronsky were so hot. You know, and then as an adult, I was like, what are you guys doing? You know, get yourself together, you know? This is, you know, we just... It's almost like we're, we're a different species than we were when we were 25, you know? The passing of time is so much a theme in your work. And obviously, you and Rick Linklater have a thing that you keep coming back to and keep trying to solve and keep working at. But I also I, I want to talk about Seymour, an, an introduction, yeah, yeah. which is your documentary that you made. And for people who don't know, you created this documentary about this pianist named Seymour Bernstein, who lives in New York, and stopped performing, what, 30, 35 years ago? Yeah, 38, something like that, yeah. And has lived in the same apartment for 54 years. Mm-hmm. Or, <laughs> and there's such themes of aging and time passing. And, and what I took a lot from that film is, is that there was a lot of questions on your end about the, sort of the arc of our lives. And, and, you know, I got the sense from that film that you feel like you're at this midpoint and you're asking a lot of questions about does the second half of my life have to be like the first? And you're looking to this guy. But I guess I wanted to ask you right off the bat, just what, what was the impetus for starting that film and doing it? I think you're absolutely right that I was, you know, here I am, was turning 40, and I'd always been the youngest at everything. You know, I, my self-image was that of a young person. You know, uh, when Dead Poets Society came out as 18, I was the youngest client at my agency. Right. Uh, you, you know what I mean? I was always the youngest. Oh, he made his Broadway debut at 21. Oh, he wrote a book at 24. I was just a kid, always. And that was my... And all of a sudden, that wasn't true anymore. And I felt like, well, I wasn't allowed to be promising anymore. I, it was time to deliver. And, and this kind of felt like a giant weight on my back you know and also I think that I don't know when it happened but I thought that being an adult was going to be easier than it is it's really 
I, I think I thought it was going to work like this. You know, you work hard, you tell the truth, your aim is true, and you'll slowly build and get better and better and better. And life doesn't work on some slow, gradual ascent where every decision makes sense. You know, it, it, it was turning into much more of a slog where sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes twisted, sometimes what you thought was a failure turned into success, sometimes what you thought was a success turned into a failure. Right. It's much more confusing than I thought. And I also had had enough success to realize that that wasn't going to make me happy. And I had enough failure to know that that wasn't going to make me happy. And I didn't know what the hell I was living for. And here I met this 87-year-old guy who seemed so happy. Okay, so that, that's interesting. So, so the first thing you got from him was that he was content with yeah, who he was. he liked himself. And he wasn't eating himself alive with bitterness or greed or ambition or... Um, breaking his arm, patting himself on the back, you know, that he, oh, it's hard to navigate a life and keep growing, you know? And I met him and I was taken not to be corny or something. I mean, he'd roll his eyes if I said this, but there was something like fully actualized about him, you know? What do you mean? He liked himself. He, he knew who he was and who he was not. And he was very comfortable to talk to because of that. I think it's what makes him a great teacher. And I was immediately fascinated, you know, that he had this thing that he basically had come to feel that blind pursuit of success at his profession was detrimental to his development as a man. You know, and we live in a society where everybody's just like, well... Are you making more money? Are you getting more success? I mean, what are you doing? And here I was having this trouble of judging where I was at in my life and, and realizing that, you know, I needed a criteria beyond anything external to judge myself about how I'm doing. And he seemed to possess it. He, yeah, he, well, I, what I got from the film is that about halfway through, I got the sense that, that you, you really wanted to learn from this man. I, at one point, you just pointedly asked him, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's not for material gain or for re- religious significance. And, 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 you know, for a long time, it's really focused on him. And then right in the middle of the movie, there you are on camera asking this very direct question. I mean, did, he, did it switch for you to him being someone that you felt like there was wisdom to be gained from? You know, I, I, had, I didn't include that in the movie for a long time. My editor really loved that. And... and I ultimately agreed that it was, I like watching a movie where it feels like something personal is at stake and you understand why the person making it is making it. And I was making it to learn. I mean, I didn't want to make a documentary. I I didn't, I I have no like ego about, I want to be a great documentarian. I, I really was moved by this person and I was trying to come up with an excuse to spend more time with, with him and learn more about it. And I also, I did believe that if I had the interest, other people might too. I knew I was learning a lot. And it was, you know, he really talks about very simple, old-fashioned things of which are nice to hear. Like, well, there is no happiness without meeting your responsibilities. People always want to talk that happiness is pleasure. Sure. Right? But it almost never is. You know, pursuit of pleasure rarely is, you know, long-term happiness. What makes you happy is doing a good job. Saying you're going to do something, doing it. You feel good. A job well done. That's the, the real source of our self-esteem. And um, 
know, I was just a little hypnotized by him. And, and I was seeking just that. Why am I doing this? And I was also struggling. You know, I have four kids. And I was, when I was 18, I made $30,000 doing Dead Poets Society, okay? I was the richest person in my family. I was the richest person I ever met, okay? And uh, I never, I was real idealistic. And I would do interviews and talk about how I don't work for money. And, you know, I'm a true artist. And these are the ethos by which I live in. You know, I was a punk kid. I didn't have any real knowledge of a lot of things about life. I'd had this great benefit of a family who loved me and all the support, and I had a lot of freedom. And here I was turning 40, and I had a child support. I've got these other kids. I've got, you know, and, and all of a sudden, I'd, I, I felt like I had a lot of grown-up problems. And I didn't understand, like, is it okay to work for money? Is it not okay? What, what am I doing? You know, I, nothing, all, nothing made any sense to me all of a sudden. And I was suffering from this serious stage fright for the first time in my life. All of a sudden, I was scared to act. Right, you mentioned that in the film, that you, you were suffering this crippling stage fright. Crazy. I've been acting since I was 12 years old, you know? I've never been scared of... I mean, so everything that came easy all of a sudden... All of a sudden, it all was hard. Saying two lines in front of an audience is hard. People would say, you know, you ready to go to set, and <sighs> panic would set in. How do you think that came up? I think a little bit had to do with what I said about this feeling like it was time to be good. It was time to... I never really put that pressure on myself, you know? I remember... Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know what he would think about it now, but we have a mutual friend in Jeff Tweedy, and I'd asked him to score this movie that I did. <laughs> and we watched the movie for the first time. It's a, it's a weird movie, okay? It's called Chelsea Walls, and Jeff wanted to see it with no music, and it really is a strange non-narrative kind of tone poem yeah. uh, and uh, really needs music. And uh, so we watched it late at night, uh, no music, and it was over and he kind of didn't say anything. And he, it was one of the weirdest moments of my life. He looked at me and said, what do you say when people say that you're pretentious, right? And I'm like, uh... It beats not trying. And he goes, I agree. I agree. This movie is in danger of being pretentious. <laughs> you know? Really? But we're going to work on it. I like it. And it was a really funny moment where what I'm trying to say is like, I was always reaching for a little bit more than I knew how to grasp. Huh. You know? And Getting older, I finally was realizing what he meant when he said that. I didn't even know what he meant when he said that. And, and now I was understanding ways in which I was full of shit and ways in which I was really serious. And, and things, I think I might have been nervous because I was understanding things a lot more completely than I had. Right. You weren't under the fog of... Of, of youthful arrogance. And people or telling you this or telling yeah, you that. Whatever. You were. I was really staring. And also, let's face it. You know, you get to 40 and it's not a myth. You're going to die. You feel it. There's a huge road behind you. A bunch of decisions made and you start to go, wow, this is really it, huh? Right. It stops being potential for things you might you get. You get it. You know, there's gray hairs and, and you're like, oh, wow. And I have a life lived, you know. i got a relationships I screwed up, relationships that went well, 
decisions I made that were good, decisions I made that were bad, and you start to see, it just starts to be a little overwhelming. And it wasn't, didn't have the kind of clarity that youth can give. And Seymour, looking at him, he knew exactly what I was talking about. You know, it ain't easy. And the, his, the thing he said to me when we were at dinner, when he met, is, is uh, I said, well, you know, I'm really struggling. You know? And he goes, good, good. You might be onto something. And it's a great way of thinking. Because then he would go on to say, well, what, what's happened in every other time period of your life when something bad happened, when you suffered? What happened? Well, I guess I grew and I went, yeah. Right. So why would you be sad that something bad's happening now? This is our life. Our life is not to get out for free. Right. You know, it's not the point is to get through unscathed. We're all going down, you know. The point is, you know, the, the end game is the same for all of us, right? Exactly. Ain't nobody win this game. And so it's got to be about how you play it, you know. It's, it's got to, we got to be here now and play with each other. And, and, um, and so he was the right person for me to meet at that time. And my hope, I, and I felt really privileged to have access to somebody like that. And I know that most people don't. And... Um, I kept saying to my wife and to other people, I was like, somebody's got to make a documentary about this guy, you know? And, and everybody kept saying, well, why don't you do it? So I finally did it. When I saw the film, uh, you know, the first half of the film, I was just sort of mesmerized with this guy and, and who he was. And, <laughs> He's and kind the, of hypnotizing, isn't he? He is. And, but then the second half, I thought, well, this is, this is a film as much about you as it is about mm-hmm. him. And... And I thought it was a really brave film to, to sort of address some of those things and to be able to say, like, one of the things you say in the film is you say, some of the most talented people I know are some of the most terrible people I know. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, you know, you have that question. And I think of that Dylan quote from that uh, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie mm-hmm. and where you, you throw down your hat and you say, When my head gets twisted, when my mind grows numb, when I think of too old, too smart, or too dumb, when you're lagging behind and losing your pace and life's slow motion crawl or life's busy race, when the wind's got you sideways with one hand holding on and the other hand is slipping because the feeling is gone and your jackhammer falls from your hands to your feet and you need it badly, but it lays on the street. And your That's good right. gal's gone and she's long gone and flying and your heart feels sick like fresh when, fish when they're frying. That's right. And you throw it on your hat and you say, Christ, do I got to be like that? That's right. And I felt like that film was Christ. Do I got to be like that? That's when you introduced Glenn Gould. That's so true. Uh, You know, it's like, and Glenn Gould has to take the cushion off and have the piano up here to be able to play. And, and, you know, Seymour sort of dispels that myth a little bit. And and you get in this conversation about, well, does does true talent come with just being a horrible person? And and it, it seemed like, you were using Seymour as your mirror to say, well, here's someone who has 46 more years of experience than me. And, and I thought it was a really brave film, and I thought, I thought it was... It's kind of like one of those things that... You know, some people have kids, and they, they're forced to grow up when they have kids, but some people, I think, artists need to, need to ask these tough questions almost publicly to be able to have those conversations with themselves, you know? My whole you know, so much of my life has been in public that it's kind of the only way I know. You know, I was 18 when Dead Poets Society came out. I've made a fool out of myself, left, right, and center. You know, I've gotten divorced in public. I got famous public. I've gotten good reviews and bad reviews. And so, like, in a way, 
maybe I don't know how to have the conversation not in public, you, you, you know, maybe. Well, to me, I saw it as I'm, I'm going to take back the narrative myself yeah, and, and show who I am because I feel like there would be this sort of feeling if you've been famous for that long and grew up in public that any time you walk into a room of new people, they all have an assumption about you and it's probably wrong. And it would be hard to not feel like you disappear a little bit into that image that you assume they have. Is that, is that sort of the case? Uh, you're spot on. I mean, that's the thing that nobody tells you is you, when you, you know, shortly after Reality Bites came out, I, it's like I never made a first impression ever again. You know, it's the strangest thing that you, you give up. You walk in a room and you can't make a first impression. Everybody already has an impression. And some of it is hyperbolic positive, you know. Which and is so, and, bullshit. Which is bullshit. And some of it's really negative, you know. And it, it, it's a weird thing to give up because it's the idea that you can start again tomorrow is valuable to all of us, you know. I can be better tomorrow. Yeah, but you you're know, sort of locked in the box of perception, right? But you're kind of locked right? into this thing. And I've always resisted it. You know, there's a... A thing I've always believed, you know when somebody, when they really want to make you crazy in prison, in prison war camp or anywhere, they put you in isolation, right? Well, the thing I realized, the second you become famous, you're kind of in a weird isolation. People want to know why famous people marry other famous people so often or something like that, you know? It's because they're in ISO with them, you, you know? There's this weird glass wall. I just did this beautiful talk. It was kind of heartbreaking to me in a strange way. Did this talk at this university about some students, and I was trying to talk to them and trying to be, to the best of my ability, or whatever. I was trying to be real with these young sure. kids. They're 20, 25, or whatever. And, but nobody really wants me to be real. They just want a photo. You know? They just want a photo. And, and, and it's kind of heartbreaking because you go, like, I'm actually here. And if you really do like me, like, let's talk. You seem really interesting. You're all a bunch of film students. I actually was looking forward to come here because I'm really curious what you guys are thinking about right now. Like, what's happening? Yeah. What's happening? But that dialogue was never going to happen because I was behind a glass wall, you know? And I think The Hottest State, Seymour, the documentary, they're both, it's me, like, tapping on the back of the glass, hoping it'll break a little bit. Right. You, you, you know, this, we're just the same, all of us, you know. And um, there's a great thing. It, it, it was in a Sean Penn interview I read once where he talked about the problem with celebrities. It creates this illusion of specialness. And whenever any of us stop treating everyone we meet as special, because of course I want to believe sure. I'm special. I want, I mean, that's my joke always, you know, people say, couldn't you tell that guy was full of shit? And I was like, no, he was complimenting me. I loved him. <laughs> you know, it's, when you're, you know, when you're in moments of success in this profession, all anybody does is tell you you're great. And you know what? You just want so bad to believe him. Right. But if you believe that, then you have to believe exactly. the it's worst, so, it's the other side. It's confusing, right. yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think that Seymour is an interesting film, too, because uh, timing-wise... I'm assuming that was in the can before Boyhood came out. Mm -hmm. So you're in this sort of... I made it the last couple of years we were finishing Boyhood. Okay, so you're in this sort of space where you're questioning everything uh -huh. and questioning whether you, should you take jobs for money. And I'm assuming when you say that, you're like, well, there's some offers that have come along that aren't, they aren't touching my soul, but, but 
I have a mortgage and alimony or whatever it is, right? And, and you're asking yourself all these questions and then boyhood comes out. And, and I'm sure the, the, the well of optimism and being filled up with compliments is, I'm sure that flood is happening now all over again, that cycle. And, and I, I, I wonder if that, you know, now at, at the age you are, if you can see that as a cycle more than maybe, maybe if that had happened to you oh, 10 definitely, years ago. Definitely. You see the whole ebb and flow of this profession. And you can see it with a smile. You, you, and, and you yeah. can enjoy the parts and of I it. And I can enjoy it. I mean, for me, you know, the success of Dead Poets Society or Training Day, for example, to take two, like, decade-apart yep. success things, um, were different than this one because this one I wasn't hired. You know, it wasn't like somebody, it wasn't never a job. Uh, I didn't audition for it and get hired. You know, this is a contemporary of mine, um, uh, Richard Linklater. I mean, this is, boyhood is very connected in a way. It's a spiritual sibling to the Before trilogy. Very this is part so, of yeah. this thing that we've been working on. It couldn't be any more personal to me. You're, you know, what? I got to make a movie where helicopters aren't blowing up and people aren't being tortured. And it's about the gentleness of life. It's a movie about my part. It's about being a dad. Yeah. This is the most important thing in my life. You know, all this other stuff is just kind of chatter. You know, being a dad to these young people and being a son, too, to my father. You know, these are, this is the stuff that is my life, my real right, life. Right. And I got to make a piece of art about that. And... It's worked. People liked it. <laughs> you know, well, normally when you get to make something personal and cool, it's some weird ancillary project. Right, you, you, right. You know? And here I am. It's, I feel like we threaded the needle. You, you know? Well, I, you've been aiming at this thing yeah, your whole life. Yeah, so this and, thing that I, I, I can't believe it. It's too good to be true, really. You, you know? The thing that was amazing about it to me was that it was so much greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Like, when you come out of that theater, you do not stop and go, oh, that one scene really turned me. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's like this, it's like this it's slow build. It's a cumulative effect. It's, it's a, I, was, I used to say it's an, you know, it's an epic of minutiae. It's a, it's a quill made of all the scenes that would have been cut out of every other movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure making it, and seven, eight years in, you're wondering how this sort of hodgepodge of growing up scenes has an ending or has, a, mm -hmm. has an arc to it, right? I mean, yeah, that and, was and the question. It's funny, you can almost make any ending you want, and if, if your story was good all the way, the audience will do the rest of the work for mm -hmm. you. But I, I feel like ending that movie, kind of, kind of seeing the boy played by Ella Coltrane become a man, he, you know, he's out in the world. He's away from anyone he's known. He's made new friends. That's like that's like the break when you go off to college and and you got no one and you know and you and you're, you're starting from and you and you get to be whoever you want to be. Mm -hmm. No one knows your history. It was such a powerful ending. The great but, thing about the movie is the ending to how it ends. It's no mystery, right? But it, but it's, I, it's all about the how, not the what. Here's the thing: like right, I was we're talking everything we're talking about making Seymour and what's the point? What's the well? This movie was a pipe dream. And just at the age when I was thinking about, like, I had to give up on pipe dreams and childish dreams and things like this, the biggest dream 
we ever had, you know, worked. I mean, you know, if you sat there 13 years ago and told somebody, hey, I got a great idea. We're going to shoot. We're going to cast this little kid. I mean, we can't sign him to a contract because that'd be illegal. But he's going to be a sweet kid. I'm sure he's going to want to do it. We'll film him for a week, a year. You know, just little moments of life. Just a little real stuff of life. Make a little pastiche of this. We'll do it for 12 years. People say, great. <laughs> Good for you. Neat idea. Write a journal about that. You know, not do it. Well, we did it. And it worked. And so it's kind of... It's re-inspired me to, A, believe in independent cinema. I mean, when, when independent cinema is part of the popular culture, when you make something, just when you think, you know, you went through this with um, trying to break your heart, you know, yeah. with, with the, the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, just when you think that the world doesn't give a shit about anything that isn't corporate-sponsored and jammed down their throat, they say, no, 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 we do care. No, please do that. Please make that. We do care. The, you know, I think it's a sign to anybody interested in making independent film that people do care. Well, what I found is you have to actually make it first. You can't go into a room pitch boyhood. Yeah, yeah, you, you, that's a good point. You gotta just do it. And because, that's the beauty of Link Because Ladder. it goes back to what you say in The Hottest State. It's like we tell people to follow their dreams and to be original and be unique and do something yeah, new. And when you say, I have this great new idea, people yeah. say, well, I'll tell you why that won't work. And that's why what you guys did was so astounding. And, and, uh, and you know, I think also that a lot has been made about the fact that, you know, I heard Rick on on Terry Gross mm. on on uh, Fresh Air, and and he was talking about how hey, most of us get through life and giant tragedies don't happen, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know what what I took away from that idea because it's true you can't sit in boyhood, you know, and watch it and not think. Oh, there's a car accident coming, or there's a pregnancy coming, or there's, and we're conditioned as an American film audience that you have a main character, you throw a bunch of obstacles in front of him, and each one gets more difficult until he either becomes the hero or it becomes a tragic ending. And and I feel like Boyhood. I mean, this may be corny or maybe uh, far-reaching, but I think it kind of exposed the traditional narrative that we feel is required to make a movie a success, it kind of exposed that narrative as a lie. I, I don't know if I that's... I hope so, man. I mean, see, that's, that's... You're preaching to the choir right now because, you know, the great enemy to naturalistic acting or real, as, you know, the Shakespeare quote, you know, to hold a mirror as to up to nature, right? The, the enemy, if you're serious about acting and wanting to put real people on screen, the enemy is plot. Right? The, the enemy is the fact that we have to have a beginning, middle, and end, which there just isn't one. There's not a beginning, middle, and end to your relationship with your wife. There's not a beginning, middle, and end to anything in your life. It's all happening, you know? Uh, it's happening all the time. It's changing. The past is changing right now, it, you know, by new information, what we learn about it. And what we remember. And what we remember and how that changes. And what Rick's doing is, is he just he replaces plot with time. By, by, by being patient in the before trilogy or boyhood, you can take out plot so that nobody, nobody has any lie to say. And it's so wonderful and relaxing not to be lied to. Right. You, you know, bad things happen, but oftentimes in our life, the days just continue and we just grow and our life is made up of minutiae and these things that feel... Uh, undramatic when juxtaposed with uh, a TV show, right? And there's something about boyhood that in its presentation of 
the flow, the river of time so completely that you were like, oh, right, it doesn't, a lot of the stuff I'm worried about doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I just have to be present for what's actually happening. I really, I learned all I needed to know about Mason Sr. from the way he listened to his kids. And I thought that was really unique. I thought that the obvious choice would be to play that character a little more distant, like too young, got divorced, and there was a much more sort of expected way to play that character. But the way he listened to his kids gave me a way into understanding the choices he had made. And, And I thought that was so fascinating. And then I started thinking about, well, how how did you do that when you filmed it over time? Like, how did you know how to build that character? Because at the beginning, he he was not as connected. And, and I wondered if you guys plotted that out or if that mirrored your own life and the feelings you were having as you got older. Like, how did you make that character stay on a, on a path where I felt he was honest th- throughout a 12-year filming schedule? I mean, that was, that was the work of that job, you know, is creating these fence posts about where he was developmentally. Because, you know, the, the secret joke of the movie, right, is that we're watching these kids develop, but behind them are these parents who are still developing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the kids in a much more obvious way. But we as adults go through our own maturation process. And people like to make it real simple, simplistic and say, what was it like to watch yourself age? Well, you know, yeah, young people age beautifully and older people, you know, we're, 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 you're watching the rose get dry. We're breaking down. You were breaking down. But we have something else to offer. And, and what, I, what I was trying to do, the graph for myself, because the, the part of the script, there's a huge kind of jazz element to the movie, which was the young people stuff could be improvised, basically. Not literally improvised, but we'd make it up year by year. The part that was plotted was the parents' trajectory, you know, because uh-huh. their lives... You don't have agency in your own life as a young person. You really need to figure out, okay, this is the mom's story. It starts, they're already split up. The kids don't remember how, they don't know why. It's just mom and dad are split up. Okay, that's the way it is for a lot of us, or for Rick and I particularly, right. um, as young people. And, and so the mom's going to get remarried, she's going to go back to school, she's going to get divorced, she's going to find a new person. That was her trajectory, and the father was going to, he was MIA, he's going to make an attempt to come back in, and he's going to slowly learn how to be a dad. And he's gone, at the beginning, he's this aspiring musician, and by the end, he's going to be driving a minivan. And we're going to take our time, so that's not a joke. You're going to, it'll seem inevitable by the time you get to it. Right. You know, that was the, and a lot of what I, I had to make it really easy was, you know, I was born in 1970, right, to two UT parents. Yeah, your mom was really young, right? Really young. 18? 18 and 20, my parents were. And, you know, I got to watch my dad grow up and who he was when I was six, when I had my first memories of this long-haired guitar playing, you know, just he seemed like Waylon Jennings to me. You know, he was just an outlaw. He was bigger than life. And, And by the time I was a senior in high school, he was a grown man and he was a father and he was meeting all his responsibilities and... I was, I was old enough when Rick and I were making the movie to now see him with new eyes. Right, right. You know, and I remember thinking, God, be just amazing. What if I could do the, a portrait of that kind of trajectory? So you and, use your dad as a little bit of a blueprint. Well, he 
was, he was why it made it so easy. I could think, well, all right, where was my dad at 13? Where was my dad at 14, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, Okay, where was my dad at, like, you, you know? And it wasn't literal. I don't mean to imply that this sure, is some sure. kind of definitive portrait. Because it it's filled up with me, my experiences as a dad, you know, and it's filled up with Rick's experiences. You know, it's all a big blur, but this is kind of how we work, is taking the real stuff of life and trying to make it so that you recognize it, so it's not a lie, yeah. right? But that's what, that was how I did the blueprint. You know, that was the model, just trying to kind of honor my own dad. I remember being so upset when, when you didn't remember that you'd promised Mason Jr. the car. Uh-huh. And that's when I knew that I was, I was, I felt like I was watching a documentary more than a, uh-huh. a film. And, and again, it struck me right there that, well, if this was any kind of Hollywood picture, he would say he forgot, and then the car would be waiting. With right? a big blue ribbon tied around. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, the fact that I felt real pain for that kid, that, and, and the way you threw away the promise, too. It wasn't like, oh, God, did I say, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, no, well, you know, I, I couldn't keep the car. I had to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> That's real life. And it was, it was a masterful performance. And, and I also thought a lot about, uh, about all the scenes with the kids when they were young. And, and it had to be a challenge as an actor to work with. I mean, you probably did 20 years previous with trained actors, and then you're sitting on the floor. Was that, uh, like, I'm sure it was a challenge to try to follow the kids in the present and improvise, but what did you learn about yourself as an actor from acting well, with kids? Well, you're, you're hip to the hardest. I mean, that was the hardest part of that movie, being it was. with Lorelai and Eller, who are so real, they're not acting. They're just kids. And like, so, did you feel put to shame at some point? That- well, I tried not to be, but it was very, that was the concern. I'd say to Rick, these kids are so real. You can't act with them at all. You just have to listen and talk to them. And because and, if you start acting with them, they kind of get this look in your eye like, what are you doing? And they know you're being fake. Yeah, at that why, point, are you, right? why are you doing that? Like, you, you know, it's, it's like working with, um, it's a weird experience. I hope they don't mind the comparison, but when I was 19, I did this movie, White Fang, right? And, uh-huh. and you can kind of make for this Disney dog movie, right? But I got to do all these scenes with these half wolves. If you act with a half wolf, they run away because you seem like a fake slob, you know? I had to do this scene in White Fang, and it's really interesting where they wanted to get this scene where White Fang and the boy become friends, right? right? And so how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to show the wolf eating out of his hand, that's, and he's going to let him pet. And so they had this idea. They're going to hide three cameras, and they put me on an island. It's a little river. Was running around, and, and you can't really see this in the camera, but you see I'm right by a river, but I'm actually on an island. So the wolf can't get off the island. The wolf uh, doesn't like the okay, water, okay. right? And they put me on this thing, and I sat out there all day, trying to get this damn wolf to eat out of my hand. And there's a lot of tricks to implement to get a wolf to eat out of your hand that are very relevant to all of life, which are one is that the wolf has to be hungry, two, that you can't really want the wolf to eat out of your hand because if the wolf senses you have an agenda with it, it immediately is disinterested, mistrustful, and... You have to actually just be yourself. And 
um, I remember this animal trainer saying to me, look, if he bites you, hit him, you know? And, you know, don't try to be his friend. Just go out there and be yourself and do your own thing. And so I went out there and I was whittling and doing different stuff. And, but I had a nice little pile of meat at my thing. And he was hungry. And, you know, and eventually we got it. No kidding. But, but it, was, it was, I swear, it was the most definitive scene in my life about, um, and I got, this, I got this wolf to let me pet him, you know. And, but you had to stop wanting it. Right, right. And, man, that's hard when a whole crew is sitting out there falling asleep while you're whittling with the wolf on the other side of the island. But in, I'm not saying that Ella and Lorelai were like that, but they had a wildness to them, an unprofessionalness that I want to cultivate in myself all the time. So there's no disrespect about it. They, they were good kids. They showed up on time. They cared. They, they you know, um, but they, uh, they smelled phony. Right. You know? Well, I think that's, that's the beauty of kids, too, is that it, if you're engaged with your kids, you, you, realize, you realize how perceptive we are as humans. And as we become adults, we allow people to behave so poorly. So poorly. We accept you know? such a mediocre. We accept oh, no. phoniness. We accept white lies to our face as a way to avoid some sort of... You know. I think that's why we all love that Dylan in that documentary, Don't Look Back. The, the, what's so appealing about that is his just merc- I mean, he's an asshole through a lot of it. Yes. But he's mercilessly unaccepting of phoniness. Yes. And it's so wonderful to be around. You, you, you know, he acts yeah. the way a lot of us wish we acted. You know? Reading about you acting with these kids and thinking about it, I, I, it makes me realize how much my own kids can pick up on what's going on in the room. They pick up everything. Everything. And, and as they get older, scary. you realize how much they picked up. Yeah. You think, oh, they, they know everything. And that, and that comes back around to Dead Poets Society because, you know, you said once that there were so many lessons flying around on that set. And, and you said all the kid actors, it, we didn't know what was going on, but somehow it was getting in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think kids absorb stuff without knowing they're, they can't use it as kids, well, but they'll use it as they, they get older. Here's the thing is that people think it's a big deal. They, what kids pick up is not what you say, but what you do. So you can say, don't lie. You can say, don't drink. You can say, tell the truth. You can say, work hard. You can say whatever you want. But if you don't live that, it's absolutely meaningless, and they see right through you. And you cannot say it at all. And if you do it, they read it loud and clear, you know? And that's, that's the funny thing I've been learning as a parent, you know, that really your life is your message. Yeah, you know? that's true. I, I wonder if uh, uh, Lorelai and Eller picked up on the working relationship and the history that you and Rick had. You know, because... Watching that film also and, and knowing a little bit about how much you've worked with him, I'm, I'm sure you guys had a problem-solving uh, method. Like, like, we have a built-in problem, yeah. and a lot of it's intuitive. I mean, that's what, what, what any great collaboration, whether like with, in any work environment, what makes a good collaboration is when you protect each other from your weak spots, right? I can see certain areas in which uh, I can be an asset to Rick, you know, and you can see, okay, Ethan is, you know, and we protect each other. We make each other stronger, you know, like, like any good collaborative team. Right. You, you know, and that's why oftentimes when, you know, without friendship, 
people get derailed by real friendship, meaning people tell you the truth in your life and people are on your side in a loving but truthful way. Yes. Right? I mean, we all know that one of the things I always feel sad about, you see it with a lot of young directors, they have one good film and the next film is wildly indulgent. And you know, God, oh, they no longer have anyone in their life to tell them that this is 35 minutes too long. That's right. Uh, you know, <laughs> And they didn't bring, bring back their friend who was the DP because now they could get now the DP that made. they could get Storaro. That's right. Yeah, right. And it's like, okay, well, Storaro doesn't like you, okay? And you're a creep and you guys don't have a shared vernacular. That's right. And, 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 it, and it makes me think about, you know, the idea that you and Rick have worked together multiple times and, and uh, you know, I'm sure there's something that you get from working together over time that very few actors get to experience. Very few actors get to experience multiple films with the mm. same director. And, and it, do you think there's something there's something that you think stands out about that kind of relationship? That it's about particularly if you I liken it to a romantic relationship, just because the examples are most obvious. If somebody doesn't trust you, you know if they're it's very difficult to have any real intimacy. If there isn't, you have to be willing to, to show your, to be a f idiot, to be a fool. And uh, I remember our, our, the movie we did tape. Um, yeah. It, I remember having the feeling, it was like the third time I, I was working with Rick. And I realized, well, this guy really thinks I'm a great actor, you know? And then you start acting like one. You, you, you know what I mean? It's almost the same. Sometimes I feel this way with my wife. She just loves me. You, you know? And I sometimes find myself just trying to be the person that right. she sees. She, she, must, she thinks I'm so much better than I am yeah. inside that I better live up to it because... But it's kind of in a good way, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like... And Rick was that way. I mean, he just... Oh, do that thing, do that thing, you know? Go, go do that. Remember, remember the way you did it back in Russell? Like, do, do it like that. Go make fun of him. Do that thing you do. Come on. I'm like, God, this guy thinks I'm brilliant, you know? Because it's not just Rick. You know, I've worked with Antoine Fuqua a couple times. I've worked with Andrew Nichol a couple times. I like when I get somebody. You, you know, it's like uh, I hear their music and I can help them get it out the way that they want to. I, I take pride in that. Or, or guys who are in my theater company, um, when we work together on stage and, and, and when you're really with somebody and you really watch them excel and you know how to put them in a position to excel, it's thrilling. Yeah. You know, I got to direct this play with Alessandro Nivola um, and watching, knowing that he was great and then creating an environment where everyone else could see it, you know, that's a, that's a great high. Well, I, you know, there's another way to ask that question, too, which is, um, you know, I'm sure you've had experiences, because you made Boyhood for 12 years, you go off and do another film, and you, and you don't have that, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you missing when you don't have that, that shorthand and that trust? Like, does it take away tools from you? Oh, in definitely. A I mean, it's such a drag. Sometimes I'll be on. A lot of, a lot of actors are poorly behaved, okay? I mean, that's just the facts. And so you show up on set, and you don't know the director's been through a terrible experience with the last two actors they worked with. So when you say, hey, I got an idea, they go, oh, God. 
you, you know? When I say, hey, I got an idea to Rick, he goes, yeah, what is it? Yeah, no, because I mean, he knows I won't care if I, he doesn't like it. You know, it's not, right. like, it's not we're not going to get in some ego pissing contest about who's, you know, the best idea always wins. But a lot of directors have had bad experiences. A lot of producers have had bad experiences with actors being not on time, with people being cavalier about their work ethic, you know. And what's great about, you know, uh, like I'll give you an example. Andrew Nichol and I have a movie that's coming out in May called Good Kill. And it's about these drone yeah. pilots and stuff like that. We had like 15 minutes to make this movie. I mean... The, the movie needed a $20 million budget and we had a $5 million budget. Every, like, but he knew that I was going to be there for him. And I knew, okay, let's let that go. Like, I knew what questions to ask and which ones to let go. Like, we didn't have time for that. And it's like being in a, in a band, you know? You, you know, he could trust me and I could trust him. And if he said that we should do it like that, I knew... If Andrew says it, that, that's what he, I, I'm not going to fight him on this. Right. Because, and he knows that if I say, hey, I think it's important that we do this, he goes, okay, it must be. Because we've done two other movies together. He knows I'm not jerking him around. I, he knows I'm on his side. And I know he's on my side. You, you know, he doesn't want to make me look like an idiot. And you don't always know that. You don't, right. You don't always know that. I mean, you don't know when somebody comes in here uh, what they're going to be about. No. You, you don't know. And you kind of have to adjust. You, you always, it's always a give and take. You know, it's funny. No matter what you do, if you do it with enough people, it's just like life. You're not going to connect with everybody. And all you can do is be as curious and interested as you can and be open to it. And like, no one gets off with a perfect record, you know? And, and, but if you start trying to design your life around having a perfect record, you're, you're done. It's a great John Lennon line about the trouble with aspiring for perfection is every time you try to put your finger right on it, all you actually do is push it away. Oh, that's it, good. It, it, you know, and I've just found that to be true over and over again. You know, you got to be supple and you got to laugh a lot. And uh, you got to, you know, the thing that Phil used to say, Phil Seymour Hoffman used to always say, you have to work as though it were the most important thing in the world and as if it couldn't matter less. Some, they just both have to be true all the time, you know? Yeah. It's got to keep you up at night, and you got to be able to laugh about it. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I said to my son, we were bowling the other day, and um, I said, look, we'll win. All you have to do is not throw a gutter ball. One pin, and we win this, okay? And worst advice ever, right? <laughs> I was like, why did I say that to you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems so important, and I made it. It was just... Uh, and then he disappointed you. Yeah, oh, like, I give a shit, you know? I've always felt that uh, I didn't really start growing up until I had kids of my own. I, you know, I wonder if, if the same is true for you, that, that it took having kids to sort, of, to sort of really grow up, in a way. And, and if having kids changed your approach to your work. Well... The short answer is yes, but I also think that a lot of people can find there is a certain joy that comes from meeting your responsibilities, you, you know, and a certain joy that comes from being there for other people. And for somebody like me, uh, who had been wildly, so many of my dreams have come true, you know, I've gotten so much of what I wanted. Uh, that it can breed a kind of self-indulgence, 
you know? And, and kids just pummel that. They just pummel that. And um, they kind of, they chew away at whatever narcissism you have. They just chew away at it, you know? And I, I'm so grateful for it. I think there are other ways to do it for other people, you know? I mean, I think there's a lot of people that can get that, oh, through many ways. Uh, you know, it's about being there for other people. You know, I was never asked to be there for other people um, until I was a parent. Um, And there's a a thing I really believe that you kind of learn. There's this beautiful thing that can happen as a parent, which is that you love this kid so much, and then you realize that, oh, wow, somebody loves everybody as much as I love this kid. Yes. And you start to it starts this possibility of seeing how interconnected we all are. Like, the way I feel about my daughter and my son, somebody feels about you, you know? And so you're this magical creature to these people, the same way I feel about Maya and Levon. Somebody feels about you. So you kind of feel already like, okay, I better be nicer to this person. You know, or interested in them. And, and then you go, this guy here and this guy here. and. You, you know, in the women in the other room, like it's this train of compassion, yeah. you, you know, that you can build on and you start to see the world, not just from here, but realize that there's a lot of different points of view happening. And that's really exciting because the world gets bigger. And instead of feeling all this pressure, you actually feel released. You know, it's also awesome. It's awesome to see there's a lot of ways in which my kids are, are different than me. And sometimes I think my son, for example, thinks that ways that he's different than me that, that he wishes I was more like him. He doesn't know that I'm in awe of it. I love watching all the ways. You know, it's fun when they're the same as you and think, but it's fun when they're different. And because my world just keeps getting bigger. And, and that's beautiful. You know, I, I think that answers your question that you posed in Seymour of why am I doing this? And you're doing it because to dive deep into something and go through the trials and tribulations of making something, not only is, is the way we can fulfill ourselves, but it's the most perfect example to set for our kids and people around us that we love. And, and, and you know, for me, I, I, I've, it's been such a joy to talk to you because I feel like you're my favorite kind of artist because you're curious and you keep trying to do things and you don't rest on your laurels. And so it's it's just really great to get to know you a little bit. Well, thanks, you know. Well, I love your show, and I love your movie. Oh, thank and so you. that means a lot. And, um, uh, you know, thanks for having me on this. Oh, thing. God, thanks. Thanks for doing yeah, it. Yeah. Come back anytime. All right. All right, good deal. We've never had a repeat guest, but maybe well, we should do that. Maybe you can come back tomorrow. Do it long enough, and you'll, you'll get a bunch. There you, you go. Know? And that'll be really... It might be fun to revisit somebody five years later and, and get to build on... Where would that idea have come from? <laughs> yeah, right. You see the way that I think. Well, folks, that was a trip down memory lane to dip into our archives. I sounded so young back then. Ah, it wasn't that long ago. But, you know, it is fun to go back for me and listen to these conversations and realize how far we've come and yet how fresh they still seem to me. So I hope you enjoyed that. We're going to have another one next week. 
So please keep tuning into Off Camera while we figure out our situation. And please, if you haven't yet, go to offcamera.com and you can see our entire archive in television form by getting our television subscription package. That's a really good deal because for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever done, 218 of them in total, to watch as many times as you want on any device of your choosing, all in glorious high definition black and white. It also is a great way to support the show, and it keeps us going over here. So please take a minute and do that. And if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, that's a great way to make sure you never miss an episode. So go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, hit subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review so that other people can find us. Another great way to stay connected with us is through social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram and Sam Jones on Twitter. You can also send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And most of all, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this experiment. Hopefully we'll keep it going for a long time. And I'll see you next week off camera.